Greetings. My name is Blake Schmida, alongside Leo Menchetti, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a great time of national need. On today's episode, we are joined by Raymond Kemp, former Fleet Master Chief and current CEO of Kemp Solutions. Raymond, welcome to the American Valor Podcast. Blake, it's a pleasure, and Leo, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolute honor to be a part of the foundation, but then to actually be a guest on the podcast I've been enjoying since, uh, since even before I joined. Pleasure to be here. It's an absolute honor. Awesome, and we're just super excited to have you. Just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about Kemp Solutions um, and maybe your inspiration behind starting the company? Sure. So Kemp Solutions is just my own brainchild. It's an LLC that I started right as I was uh, preparing to retire. And the primary reason, really two reasons. One, I wanted to continue speaking uh, and stay connected to the Navy that influenced the majority of my career, which is the Navy Chiefs Mess. Uh, and then it's as I began to speak and talk to other people outside of the Navy, I realized that there may be value that I can add to companies that are seeking to build resilient and diverse teams. Because my intention, you know, as I paused and considered that is, I mean, how can I change the world from the workplace out? And so, I don't know, I'm a keynote speaker um, in diverse organizations, both large and small, invite me to speak because of that leadership experiences. Uh, I have overcome my fair share of challenges in uniform and then the challenges like the social injustice and the global pandemic we've been enduring the last 18 months. Companies are looking to build strong, resilient teams like I served with during my 33 year career. So that's Kim Solutions and it uh, has been a challenge and it's been you know, exciting through the virtual space, but it's worked out well. At one point in your career, you were directing and influencing around 56,000 service members, contractors, and civilians. What are the keys to leading this amount of people successfully? The key, I guess I've used the Kemp keys. There's, there's five keys, uh, things I think are just a staple of good leadership when it comes down to large and small groups. Those things, I, I refer to them as the ABCs, but it's, the, it's having a strong attitude, belief, character, uh, and then the next two our focus and perseverance. So when it comes down to a, a large group of folks, and I was a command master chief on an aircraft carrier as well. So 5,000 people I would, in, or, well, actually 5,000 plus that I would be interacting with, you know, face-to-face, knew my name, I knew theirs. Having a good attitude was super duper uh, important. And with 56,000 people, it's a little bit easier because I had a radio show, I was on television, things like that. A lot of speeches was the primary way that I communicated with folks. But the, the key point was having a sincere, sincere high attitude and level of care. Uh, in, in days gone by, we would say that attitude determines your altitude. And I would agree. I would agree with that. Uh, and so to have a sound 
um, and good attitude and not just fake. You know, see some people have got this fake smile. They have this fake measure of graciousness. Uh, but when it's sincere, people know that you have a high attitude, then that is something that you know, creates a measure of trust. So with regard to attitude, I believe the way to do that is through, you know, your you know, mind, body, spirit kind of perspective, right? So staying mentally agile by, you know, reading things that are interesting, having conversations with people who uh, inspire you. You know, there is a uh, poet uh, named Nipsey Hussle who once said that if you're not inspired by your inner circle, then you have a cage. Uh, and so I would say that having, when it comes to, again, mind, body, spirit, then for your mind to stay stimulated, it's important to be around those things that allow you to grow. Staying physically fit uh, helps maintain your attitude, as well as having some quiet time. I'm very convinced that mindfulness and meditation uh, are ways to uh, keep my intellectual growth moving forward and in the way that I would want for it to do. So attitude, belief, and character uh, are, are the keys uh, in leading any size group of people, but especially attitude when it comes down to a large group of folks. I was curious, how has your experience in the military impacted your career as someone who is a great motivational speaker and a leadership developer? Well, I'd say that when someone realizes that you know, I started the Navy in, in the 80s and everything between the 80s and 2019 uh, that was seen on CNN, you know, every combat environment I was a part of in one way or another, not just the long war, not just the first Gulf you know, war excursions, but also over in East Timor. And then, that, so that's a, the, from the combat perspective, but on the rest and relaxation perspective, I, I've also visited every inhabited continent, the East Coast and West Coast of every inhabited continent. So when people see a large breadth of leadership of people, you know, as we talked about just a moment ago, 56,000 at one point, um, but that leadership began three days into the Navy. I was put in charge of a group of 20 of us during boot camp as a squad leader. And when I got to my first ship, I was on board three months. And then I was put in charge of, you know, six uh, people who were responsible for doing maintenance work on the ship. I mean, so 33 years, literally from the fourth day to the last day of my career, that leadership exposure has been something that kind of draws people, especially civilians. And it's not just about, you know, hearing stories about combat and things like that. It's also about how do you take a guy from Nebraska who had never in his, and this is when I went to boot camp, who had never seen a black person in his life was like, hey man, can I touch your hair? You know, how do you take somebody from that perspective or myself, you know, out of, I was born in the great nation of Texas, raised in Oklahoma, but I had never seen in person an Asian person before I went to boot camp. I mean, so you take a group of people like that with diverse backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. And these days, these days, it's okay for the outward expression to be different than the visible expression, right? So we have him and her and they. So to be able to take those groups of people and build a team that must get along is really, really something that 
has created a space for me to communicate and talk to civilian organizations that just haven't had that level of leadership. And it's more than just do it because I said so. There is a uh, expression that we used in the Navy, and that is that people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so being able to express your level of care, that heartfelt leadership is something that most may not think about the military or particularly the Navy, but that is one of the ways to be successful. Now, again, joining the Navy in the 80s, serving to 2019 means that I was on board combatant vessels when they first allowed women to come on board. And that was a super duper challenge. So my first two ships were all male. Well, technically my first three ships were all male. And so the next thing you know, women come on board and the dynamic change. Fast forward later on, the president determined that it was okay for don't ask, don't tell to take place. And once again, I was in a leadership role during that time frame and I had to lead through that. And then the repeal of don't ask, don't tell occurred. And so to take people from various different backgrounds and control the climate in the workplace, as well as the culture of the workplace. So climate would be, let's say the ship, the culture would be Navy culture, right? So to have an impact and influence on the climate and the culture has absolutely been beneficial to expressing techniques and ways that businesses can do the same with regard to building resilient teams within their organizations. Something on this podcast we don't talk enough about is the travel aspect of the Navy. Mm. So what was it like getting to travel with the Navy and experience different places? Oh man, it's crazy. So I, again, I'm a kind of a country dude from Oklahoma. First time I got on an airplane was on my way to boot camp, right? So the first time I left the country, I went to the Virgin Islands. So the ship was going around the horn of South America. So we pulled out of Philly, pulled into St. Thomas. And I was like, man, this is bananas. I mean, it was extremely beautiful, super blue water and so forth. But I was on the beach and, you know, with a group of people and just amazed because Oklahoma is a landlocked uh, state. So I hadn't seen the ocean in that type of way. And so it was, uh, man, it was just amazing. But I look up into, into the sky and I see a daggone pterodactyl. And I'm like, flock of flame. And this is before Jurassic Park. So I'm like, what in the world is a pterodactyl doing? And I begin to feel this surge of anxiety. But I'm looking around and nobody else is tripping. And I'm like, do they not see this pterodactyl that is just consuming the sky, in my perspective, coming down? It was, you know, it was, turns out it landed, it was a pelican. But to me, you know, it looked like a pterodactyl. And so I was bugged out. And, you know, 18-year-old young man, or maybe I was 19 at the time, uh, just getting exposure like that around the world. So from St. Thomas, we went to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. You know, those stories are classified around the Horn of South America through what's called the Magellan Straits. And ferocious high seas. I mean, an aircraft carrier is approximately the same size as the Empire State Building. So if you you pluck up the Empire State Building and lay it down in the water next to an aircraft carrier, they're just about the same size, you know, give or take, you know, 90 feet. Anyway, so waves crashing over the front of the, of the ship, that's the bow, 
And it was just amazing. And then on to, I think we went to Chile, Acapulco, and then to San Diego. So traveling around the world for me, and so that was my first experience. But, you know, the next thing you know, we're in, on another ship, I pulled into Israel, had the opportunity, we pulled into Haifa and had the opportunity to see, you know, the amazing uh, Baha'i temple and then go on to Jerusalem. One quick story about traveling based on, you know, traveling is relevant. Some people have been traveling their whole lives and some haven't. I'm from a place where most people don't get a chance to travel outside of the state, but I was in Turkey and we went to the city of Ephesus and I'm a Christian and I grew up in a very Christian home. And so to tell people, my family, I went to uh, Ephesus, they were extremely you know, excited and interested. But I also went whitewater rafting. So I sent a note to my, my buddy, an email to my buddy, actually to his sister, because he didn't have email. I sent it to her and it was a picture of us with a raft over our head, you know, with the yellow life preservers on the helmets. And I said, hey, I'm in Turkey, this is a photo, um, whitewater rafting. She showed it to her brother, of course. She replies back to me, you know, in quotation, your boy said, first of all, what is whitewater rafting? And secondly, who you call in Turkey? So that's just a, an expression to help you understand where I'm from. And then so how excited I am to see the right lying Buddha, for example, in Thailand, or, you know, the largest, you know, the largest this, the largest that in various places around the world. Uh, I think the most interesting place I've been to was, yeah, as a seasoned traveler, I would say, uh, still Jerusalem, just an absolute uh, amazing, amazing place. But, you know, the waterfalls in Thailand are cool. The Gulf in Dubai is amazing. And on the West Coast of uh, Africa and Ghana, you know, the Kente cloth is amazing as well, which is, you know, super important to my family who uh, really, really uh, enjoy the African culture. So it's, it's been an amazing travel. It certainly sounds like it. That's a lot of really fun stories. It's crazy going out into the world and seeing some new things that you never even knew about. But it sounds like you've had a lot of really interesting experiences and you've received some esteemed honors from the office of the President of the United States and the Navy for some of those experiences. What do you think is the reward or accomplishment you are the most proud of uh, in your career? Well, I would say... I'd say the accomplishment uh, that I'm, I'm most proud of is making it to the rank of chief petty officer. So when I first joined the Navy, again, it was, it was the 80s. So if you think about that, what that really means is that the leaders in the Navy in the mid-80s, the, those who had 20 years in, that means that they joined in the mid-60s. And the chaos and the uh, civil rebellion that was going on in uh, our nation is just abhorrible from you think back to what you probably heard, read and studied about Martin Luther King and those folks who have been going through that civil rights study struggle. Well, all those folks, you know, were joining the military as well. And so the first interaction, you know, that I had with a master chief was basically him telling me that I would, you know, that I wouldn't be able to work in the computer room because I was black. And I thought to myself, man, this is 1986. It seems like by now we should be over that. But, you know, oh, oh, well, the thing to me is that, 
you know, I was set up for a bit of a failure, you know, very frankly, throughout, you know, the preponderance of my early career. And so to make it to the rank of E5 was my, my initial goal going in because I had been told that, you know, black people couldn't make it beyond that rank. And when I made E5, I thought, Hey, you know, I've, I've arrived. This is the rank I wanted to be at. All I have to do is stay out of trouble till I get to the 20 year mark and I can go back home and I'll be paid the rest of my life for, you know, in retirement for making it to this rank. And then I had a mentor by the name of Fred Hyde say, you know, all you got to do is, or he, he actually said, you know, we've done all we can do for you to make rank. Now the rest is up to you because in the Navy, the way that we assess your professional skill set is through a written test. Uh, and so once I passed that test and made it to the rank at E6, I knew that I was going to be a master chief because the test itself, from my perspective and those around me during that time frame, I was very biased for those of us who didn't have an elite education. And so to make it beyond that test and then to get into an environment where they are comparing me and my performance more so than just my technical skills was in an environment where I knew I could win because I was skilled uh, at my craft as a data processing technician and a network manager. And so I knew when they compared me to my peers that I would make it to the rank of master chief, very frankly. And so the first step in that, when I made chief, man, that was, that was the most humbling um, and exciting and proud moment of my life, very frankly. And so making chief uh, is what I would say has been, uh, you know, the, the, the accomplishment that I am most proud of. And, you know, and from that, there were other things that grew, right? So there is 30,000 chiefs in the Navy. There's about 330,000 people in. So that's the top 10%, right? According to the law, Title 10, only 2.5% of the fighting force can be senior chiefs or E8s. And then I made senior chief. And then according to Title 10, right, the same law, only 1% can be Master Chief, okay, that I made that. And then there's only 600 Command Master Chiefs in the Navy, okay, I made, I became one of those. And then there's only four Fleet Master Chiefs, and then, okay, I made that. Then there had never been a Black Fleet Master Chief over the continent of Europe, continent of Africa, okay, then I made that. Uh, all of those things, oh, and then, you know, two weeks ago, the president appointed me as one of the commissioners on the American Battle Monuments Commission. So I'm proud of all those things, but none of those happen uh, if I don't make chief. None of those things happen if I don't have a, a leader and a mentor named Fred Hyde who made me believe in myself. So kind of probably a little longer answer than what you're looking for, but that's the straight out truth. Having a mentor is a huge importance. And once you become a fleet master chief, we were discussing earlier how it's important to have like actual and uh, personal relationships with over like 5,000 people. And it's way more important to have a personal relationship with people than have a fake relationship or one that's not built on substance and actual meaning. So how important is it to build these relationships and trust with the crew members on the ship? Well, I'd say, Leo, that it's crucial if you're going to be successful. And I mean, sincerely hyper successful. Now there are many organizations that have leaders that are just garbage and are still successful in spite of the leader. 
But if you're going to be the command master chief on board a ship, building the trust and relationships with the crew members is critical because the crew is probably 90, 80 to 90%, depending on the ship, the enlisted force, the ones who are doing the maintenance, the ones who are launching, recovering aircraft, the ones who are operating the engine spaces and the nuclear power plant and the air condition and all of those things. And so the command master chief, your ability to transverse all of those ranks, you know, because you're not, I, I wasn't just a command master chief for the enlisted force, I was command master chief for the whole ship. That means for the XO and the commanding officer as well. It means for every officer. And so to build trust is crucial because when you trust someone, you will not only take on their attributes, particularly attitude, belief, and character, but you will also increase your own measure of self-discipline and by that and your own self-belief. And by that, I mean that when you have that feeling that I cannot fail, I shall not fail because I don't want to let the organization down means one thing. But when you feel that and you don't want to let your crew down or your team, you know, and you put faces to that, like your command master chief or your frontline leader, then that changes, you know, people's resolve to do their best. And so one example of that is that we, I was on board Harry S. Truman for three years, which is an aircraft carrier. We had zero suicides. We had zero homicides. And we had the highest test scores, rating exam scores of any aircraft carrier in the Navy. And we passed an aviation inspection examination, which had never, ever, ever been passed by um, a margin of 100 uh, percent. Just had never been done. And, and I believe that all of those things were impacted and influenced by not only myself, but the entire chief's mess, building trusting relationships with the crew. That's great stuff. I, I agree with that 100 percent. I haven't seen that from a military perspective, obviously, but, you know, I think things like that are important in everyday life as well. Building relationships with coworkers, friends, family like that, just to improve the quality of life is huge. Um, And we've seen and heard that you've gone through a lot of things and they have all led you to become a motivational speaker and lead with words, but in what ways do you think athletes like Bob Feller, uh, who have served our nation and led by example, in what way do you think he can serve as an inspiration for future generations? Oh man, so Bob Feller and the the many other athletes who we recognize are a perfect example because I think all of us, like all of us should, should look at other people who have done something exceptional and, and feel compelled, not necessarily to do it in a competitive way, but to realize that we can do it too. You take someone like Bob Feller, who is in the league and we have the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then his first move is to go volunteer to do something about it. You know, that is something, that is a patriotic move that we still have deeply embedded in many Americans today. But for him to sacrifice uh, his career and his life as he knew it to join the Navy and go to war uh, is absolutely a a big deal. And he and others should be inspiring the future generations to realize that we are stronger together. When, When we 
turn from the things that separate us in this nation and cleave to those things that join us together, and I, dare I say that's the Constitution, then we weave ourselves together in such a way that we can stand up against any uh, enemy or stand up against any threat to life as we know it. And so when I think about Bob Feller's actions and in the days that he joined the Navy, right, in uh, World War II, it was the commanding officer that determined who had the leadership ability and skill and influence to be a chief that was made per ship, not the way it's done now, which is across the entirety of the Navy. And so he was very quickly seen to be exceptional and uh, a leader in a way on board that ship where they knew that the rank of chief, and in those days we would call that wearing the hat, right? Because the hat that the chief wears is different than everyone else's. Wearing the hat, he was uh, capable of doing that. And my hope is that, you know, my children, my grandchildren, the people who I'm around, uh, they see someone who is of the mindset of we, not me, the we, not me perspective, those are the people who change the world. And Bob Feller is absolutely one of those and has been an example for us to point to uh, all aspects and all walks of our nation towards him and the way he did business. I agree 100%. I think uh, the things that he has done, everybody can take away a lesson from the things that Bob Feller did for our nation. Raymond, we want to thank you very much for joining us on the American Valor podcast today. It was so great getting to talk with you. Thank you also for your service and support of the foundation. We are fortunate to have a leader like yourself be involved with what we do here. Right. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure uh, to be here and join you, Blake and Leo. Continue to do what you do for the foundation. We appreciate it. And we look for opportunities to expose and educate the nation towards the great things and this podcast to is our listeners way, this uh, conversation with former so fleet master chief well. raymond kemp concludes this episode of the american valor podcast this conversation is brought to you by the bob feller active valor award foundation the department of the navy major league baseball usaa bwxt huntington ingles and the cleveland indians Please feel free to leave your comments in the comments section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at activevaloraward.org. There you can learn about Bob Feller, Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast and more. For Blake Schmida, Leo Manchetti, and everyone at the American Valor Podcast, thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.